0: Let's face it, AI has gotten a pretty bad rap in the media and pop culture. Just think of Terminator, Blade Runner, or Ex Machina. But I think it's time that we give AI a fair shake. Welcome to Practical AI, the capacity for good, where we speak with some of the brightest minds in the industry about the exciting intersection of AI automation, customer support, and customer experience, and how we can use the latest and greatest technology to help teams do their best work.
1: Well, hello, my name is James Deal. Welcome to the podcast, Practical AI, The Capacity for Good, where we sit at the intersection of AI, automation, and experience, and seek to uncover actionable insights for those looking to improve their customer and employee experiences. Joining me today is Michael Hunnigan, VP of Product AI at Capacity, an AI-native support automation platform. With over 25 years of technology experience, Mike specializes in driving product vision and roadmaps, emphasizing collaboration between customers, companies, and partners. His expertise spans VOC applications like CX measurement, feedback, and ratings and reviews, reflected in his co-authorship. Having held senior roles at Answers.com, a 4C, and web Collage. Mike brings a wealth of insights to our discussion on AI transformative
2: impact on business strategies. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Oh, thanks, James. I've been wanting to join the podcast. I'm finally on it. So thanks for having me on. Well,
1: excited to be talking to you about you know what we're doing here and what you're doing around AI. And we'll talk a little bit about maybe capacity and what you do there, but really want to focus on large language models, the impact on the customer experience, and what you see as the future and really how businesses can jump in right away though, and start to take advantage of this. But before we kind of get into that part of the interview, I would love to understand a little bit more from you about what got you into technology? Why are you passionate about it? And ultimately, what led you to your role as VP of product specifically focused on AI?
2: Yeah, good question. So my journey started really early. So I have a twin brother. And I have an older brother and a sister. But one of the best gifts my father ever got me when I was young, probably six or seven, is he bought us an Apple IIc. And he's a retired educator. And essentially, he used his like educator discount in order to be able to purchase Apple products. And that's the first thing he got with a green screen and all. I had a handle, had a five and a quarter inch disc. And, you know, I started programming on that. And I was just really intrigued that you could take an idea and sort of like, sort of see sort of the execution of that on a screen, irrespective of whether or not it's a small like six inch uh, sort of green screen. And I was just blown away by it. My next major progression from there was getting a PC, a Performa 6.115, an Apple Performa pizza box shape. This is when the PowerPC processors first came out as the big thing. And this is around the time of the advent of the internet. This was probably in the mid-90s, like 1994. It came with a 144 modem. You know, you you CompuServe. And when you got online, you just felt like the world was just at your fingertips. I mean, I just remember getting on the internet for the first time and seeing, you know, oh, I was on a website that's in Germany or that's in the UK. I'm like, unbelievable. So by seeing how small the world got at that time, I just knew this is what I wanted to do. So you know, immediately I started learning how to use it, to write HTML, how to do web design. I had a journalism teacher, great mentor, Cheryl Hinman. She did a great job in mentoring a bunch of kids around building out really cool websites. When you're like in sophomore, junior, senior around that time. At that time, we actually took these websites and competed. At that time, they had competitions for
1: who built a website. And so what are you building? Like, what kind of website are you building in 1994? What did it look
2: like? (laughs) Oh, man, you're taking me back to the old school. So one of the websites, the first big website that I did, I had a couple of teammates, I think his name was Tim, Tim McCarthy, I think it was his name, is we built a competitive website around court. It was a program that was instituted locally in my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois, where teams were judged by their peers and they found using that program it helped decrease overall recidivism so teens if they were if you're judged by another kid your same age the chance of you doing that same crime over again or stealing or whatever or delinquency would be a lot lower if your peers judged you and what was cool was this program you know sort of flourished with the help of like our website so our goal was to get this program instituted in multiple communities around the United States. And we entered this into a competition called ThinkQuest. And as a result, I think we got like second or third, but either way, I got a $12,000 scholarship out of it. So I used that cash money against, at that time, you could buy your entire like semester's worth of books. But today you can just buy like maybe a semester's worth of books with that kind of money. But it was a lot of fun. And that really sort of got me involved in doing web design, web development. You know, I started with Photoshop 3.5 and, you know, that sort of wonder of like what's possible sort of really led me into AIs because just using tools like this could really help augment, you know, potential of like humans in general. So
1: specifically, you're in product management. Why product management? Why not development? What was your degree? And I guess, how did you end up in this product management area?
2: Well, I'm not smart enough to, do, <laughs> to be an engineer. So that, that was the first thing. But you no, know, I love... So the thing is with product management, if I can step back a bit, a minute, I started a company in the mid-2000s. I sold furniture online, e-commerce, and sold area rugs. I had a little mini area rug store in Maplewood, Missouri. And I just love being on all parts of the business where I could be in sales, I could be in marketing, I could be in development, design. Just being part of that overall sort of workflow to be able to deliver a product or service is just my thing. I just like having my hands on quite a few things. And, you know, to really keep me interested. And that sort of translated in the private sector is sort of like really sort of in technology is really just product management. That's what product managers do. Product managers are, even though they don't have necessarily tons of direct reports, they indirectly work with individual specialized teams to be able to deliver a product or service. And that's sort of like really attracted me. So my first real product management job, this was after I started my startup, but I uh, was in Like 2010, I was doing, you know, just basic design and UX work. You know, I really thought UX is where I was going to spend the rest of my time working inside of private companies. But, you know, I really started leveraging a lot of my additional skills that I've learned along the ways and started my own company in product management. And I really felt product management was the home and, and just being able to deliver ideas very quickly, working across multiple teams was the thing for me.
1: Okay. So now, fast forward, you're VP of product management at Capacity, focused on AI, right? And so what is your focus there today? What are you looking at? What are you doing every day at Capacity there as it relates to AI?
2: It's a good question. So I spend the vast majority of my time identifying key workflows our customers try to solve and try to find ways to make those workflows more effective with generative AI. So, you know, with Capacity, it's a platform. We have tons of different product lines from help desk to workflows to development tools to being able to publish support sites, a lot of capability within Capacity. And across each and every single product line, there is a definitive use case to make our end users' end users' jobs lives a lot easier with using generative AI, whether or not it's helping them author content or whether or not it's helping answer questions using a chatbot or whether or not it's trying to automate key business processes you know that used to be done with old ML sort of algorithms that now can be handled completely with generative AIs. So this has been a huge opportunity for companies to really level up very quickly without having spent a lot of money to be able to deliver real meaningful results on using generative AI.
1: Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. December-ish, November-ish of 2022, the general public started understanding what is chat GPT. And when you think about that though, or, or as you look at it, when did you start understanding? And really for those people that are maybe not super familiar with they know chat GPT, but maybe not the term LLM or large language model. That really is what GPT is. And there's others, there's Bard now at Google and, and Microsoft has their product. And so these LLM is really what we're talking about. When did that get onto your radar? And let's
2: talk a little bit about what they are. Well, that got into my radar, this was during the pandemic, this had to be like 2022, early 2022, I think GPT-3 was released, and it really sort of started changing the game when OpenAI really announced and made publicly available GPT-3.5 Turbo. And just a step back, just to give everyone an idea, what are large language models? Large language models are, they? it's a machine learning algorithm, and all it does, it generates human-like text. That's all it does. And essentially, how it comes up with this is based upon the corpus. And that corpus is, are, is websites, it's audio, it's video, it's books. These companies who developed this technology, such as like OpenAI, Facebook is one, Google is getting into the game, and they're going to be announcing some really cool stuff soon, is that they've indexed a lot of the internet plus. So anything that's publicly available from a text perspective, from photos to videos or audio, Chances are that has been consumed in a lot of these large language models. And the more content you typically put into these models, the richer, the better experience it gets alongside with how well it's trained, whether or not it's it's being trained really well. But when we talk about that real quick, these large language models, why is it
1: just in recent times that somebody had the idea to, to consume a lot of data into this to get these results? Is it computing power? Was it the algorithms? Like, What is it that all of a sudden catapulted this to very rapid
2: development? I think when OpenAI first got put on to using large language models, I think it was around 2017, I believe that's correct. I think once they sort of turned their focus to using large language models to be able to deliver these sorts of experience, these experiences and be able to respond to questions and things like that, that's sort of the moment. And I believe the concept of large language models has really existed since the mid-60s. It wasn't until like the mid-2010s or whatever to where it started to really sort of catch on as an idea. And then I think you hit the nail on the head. Compute power is a big, big challenge because large language models use a lot of math. It uses You generally you need a computer with a lot of graphics cards. Hence NVIDIA, they're well over a trillion dollar company with a lot of room to grow. With all the computing power needed in order to be able to deliver these responses, that's sort of been the only thing that's really been holding us back, is the amount of compute with all the floating-point calculations as a response to be able to deliver responses using LLMs. And right now, it's just really early. I mean, you have to think the stage that we're at. We are at the Atari 2600 Super Nintendo stage of large language models. You need a super powerful computer to typically run these, and they're not very fast. And it's going to take us a while to get to PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5, and to be able to run, you know, these models on your watch, but that is the next step. Is I guarantee that in the next three to four years, large language models are going to be running natively on all of the devices that are around you, whether that's your television, whether that's your watch, your phone, all going to be running locally on your phone or on these devices in order to be able to deliver the same sort of human-generated-like text. And you know, to just so everyone sort of understands like what this really means, if you go to Google and you type in a question like What day is it today? You know, Google, what what it will do is auto-complete. It will auto-complete what you're trying to ask, and that's essentially how large language models work. It's basically predicting, it's making a prediction on what your next word and several words are going to be, and then it sort of gives you a result from there. But it's essentially, at it's most basic form, it's just a machine learning algorithm, and all it's there to do is to generate text based upon a prediction algorithm. So it's really simple when we think about it, right? it's all text based,
1: it's consuming text, and it's putting the text together in a human language form that sounds conversational, that sounds like something a human would create. So does this eliminate Google's search engines? I mean, are search engines gone then because you just ask a question and it answers it for you?
2: That's a great question. That's yet to be determined. But I have to say personally, my usage of using search engines like Google to be able to find things or asking questions has almost went to near zero. I spend most of my time talking to generative AI tools like GPT-3.5, GPT-4 in order to get the questions to my. I mean, it's my tool. It's literally, I have a window or multiple windows opening simultaneously, asking it questions, helping me think through, helping me build out product requirements. I mean, it's one of the downfalls of generative AI is that with a lot of the models that are out today. It hallucinates. It makes things up and it's not bad for all use cases. I mean, if you're doing creative writing, you want it to do that. Some would argue that's creative. Not a bad thing. Creative is good, right? <laughs> that's absolutely right. But when you have a set of fixed constraints, let's say, you know, you have the answer to a question on this page of the book. You don't want the AI to sort of go outside of the bounds of that to start making a fact on its own. So th- it has pros and cons. The big challenge is identifying, and making sure that In your work, you find the right model that works best for your use case. So it's going to be important that if you're working with large language models, you define exactly what your use case is very early on, so your expectations are aligned. So if you're working you know, and you're using a chatbot in a very commercial way, you don't want it to hallucinate. You don't want it to make up facts. You don't want it to tell your customer your package is coming in 2032 when it's actually coming tomorrow, right? So you want to make sure that you use it appropriately. But in Buffer authors. I mean, if you're an author today, like this is your tool. This, I don't know why you're not writing 10 books, you know, a year with this capability, but you can really start to get the creative juices going with this at your side. Matter of fact, my sister-in-law, she's interested in uh, writing a novel. And she was like, I don't even know how to get started. I just have the basis of an idea. So I showed her GPT-35 and she was like, whoa, it started generating a book. It started generating the chapters and defining out and breaking her book into manageable pieces. And she says she's actually continuing on the way to work on that. So I think depending upon the use case, you really need to dig into it. And another thing I got to say is, you know, for folks, for use cases that you're wanting to deliver fact-based information, you know, you're really going to want to get into a model that's very steerable. So, for example, one of the models that I really like using quite a bit in my day-to-day is GPT-4. It is just so accurate, so good. And it's just very steerable. It's like I can tell it what to do, and it does exactly that a lot of the times. But if I use some of the older models, like let's say it's the Vinci or whether or not it's GPT three point five, even though they they got they're really good overall, but for the type of work that requires facts and sticking to the facts, it tends to hallucinate a little bit more. Those have been improved, but you know, there's models like Cohere and Dropic, and at, at the end of the day, you just have to find the model, find the brand that fits you best and then learn how to use it and spend a lot of time practicing how to talk to it we
1: could get into that right like that's a, I think a whole nother subset of developers that are coming up is prompters and being able to very specifically prompt these large language models to get what you're looking for but i know that's kind of a probably a separate conversation but let's take what you were just saying and what are some examples let's think about large language models applied to some existing business practices what are some ways in which businesses can use these to transform some traditionally manual or traditionally time intensive business practices and what does that look like i know there's some debate about okay so we don't want to put our data we have all this data here at our business we don't want to put it out in the public domain we want it to be safe we want to utilize the power of these llms on our data
2: talk a little bit about that yeah so I'll tackle your first question. So you know the use cases that we've been running into are really like customer service, customer support, and various sort of business operations. On the customer service side, you know, there is a huge, huge use case for being able to deliver sort of tools either to your team and to your customers. So for example, one of the first things that we did at Capacity, like I think back in January or February, was we introduced this AI toolkit to agents. And essentially what it does is if you're a help desk agent, you use the capacity you can easily sort of like hit this button and it'll automatically generate a response, a suggested response to that customer. So instead of having that agent you know, spend five, 10 minutes just trying to build out the body of an email, have a large language model handle that automatically for you. So that's number one. The downside of it is it hallucinates. It has a very small sort of fixed Corpus of like just that ticket or just the content of that ticket or of that customer, and then respond just using that, and that's it. So the agent will have, still have to go in and sort of manually update it, but it still has. We have, we have found our customers have cut down a significant amount of time using those tools in order to help them get started, help triage tickets, to cut average hand, uh, handle time down. To your second question, one of the things that we've been hearing, and this is actually what we're, what we're implementing as well, is almost fully automating a lot of these key processes with the help of an agent where not only will we generate response, but we will look into the systems of record. That's the next stage for a lot of these large CX companies, looking up the customer's records and building out a response based upon what their inquiry is about. So for example, if they're asking about the status of their order, we'll be able to look into this order system, be able to generate a response directly from that all without the agent having to look in system A, B, and C in order to be able to respond to it. With a system like that, agent handle times could go from, you know, tens of twenties of minutes down to, you know, a minute or less. So we think that's that big of an impact that some of this technology could do is automate a lot of those key elements of an agent's uh, job so they can do better work in other parts of the business.
1: So what kind of advice do you have for... CX leaders or business leaders that are looking at implementing an LLM, they want that automation, they want that those these generative features we've been talking about here, should they be looking at going to a Google or going to an open AI and utilizing GPT-4 or BART or somebody else? Or should they be looking to companies like Capacity or others that take this and package it up specifically for them? At what point should they look at one versus the other, or what's your opinion on that?
2: So that's a good question. So it all depends upon the use case. And, you know, if but if you're a CX leader with a large contact center with a lot of agents and you have a series of scripts that your agents sort of abide by, you could build something in-house. It could be pretty expensive. As far as the idea of even a large company sort of just going out and saying, hey, I'm going to build my own large language model, that's probably not going to be a thing. You really need a lot of content and a lot of resources in order to sort of be able to do that. The next major step is for them to look at potentially fine-tuning an existing large language model. GPT 2.5 is something is a good option for that. You could also look at some of these open source ones. Facebook has a really good one, Llama, that's really good for this. So there's a lot of opportunities there. But again, it's like the Lego pieces. You know, that's sort of the lemon that you have to deal with. Do you want to spend months or potentially years trying to build this with an uncertain result versus with a company like Capacity where we can just, you know, just set this up almost uh, turnkey inside of your organization. So that's completely up to you. But as far as your question in regards to like using a private corpus, that's the name of the game. So if anyone's out there who's using, who's putting in any company information or customer information into GPT or ChatGPT, I wouldn't recommend doing that because again, depending upon how your settings are configured, you know, you may want all the content that you're pushing into GPT is saved. So you don't have that information in there. There's been a lot of horror stories on the web that you can look up about how you know some companies have been how their employees are using it. My recommendation is to always use a provider that has the same. So if you're a company out there, my, one of the things I recommend is making sure you work with a provider that has that value the security of your data, just like you do. And the last thing you want to see happen is your data out there in the wild. And it's just a nightmare waiting to happen. So you should definitely work with a company like Capacity to ensure that uh, if you are using large language models, you're using in very secure fashion. Okay, so let's
1: talk about ethics around AI and large language models. Have you seen any use cases that you would warn companies about as it relates to the ethics of using this or anything that they should steer clear of or be aware of with regards to generative AI and LLMs?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think this is really relevant for the sort of HR folks in the world. So there's a lot of great use cases that can be solved uh, using large language models in in HR. And, you know, one of those would be like vetting resumes and things like that. And one of the key things you could do is, which is (laughs) completely on the bad side, is you could discriminate based upon certain criteria that's located in the resumes. So from an ethical perspective, I would highly recommend steering clear of trying to use or create any rules inside of your workflows that, you know, sort of look at the candidates in a certain way, you know, look at the facts of how good that candidate is and ensure that the resume sort of aligns with the job description that you have out there. But definitely steer clear of anything that says, you know, what, gender, sex, sexual identity, or so on and so forth. That's just bad news waiting to happen. So, you know, the LLS will do anything you ask it to do. So it's important that, use it in a, in a highly ethical manner. And we don't do anything for our customers or help any customers, you know, institute any rules in regards to that. when I mean, we set up their workflows, but that is definitely a possibility. And there's really no way around it from what I found. There's really no way around it. I mean, again, whatever you get into it is what you're going to get out of it. So if you only want candidates who have really cool gray shirts or black shirts, it will only deliver you candidates that have these that sort of criteria. So it's important that you know, you set these up, institute these in a very ethical manner and you'll be cool from there. Good advice.
1: So some things to avoid right there, but let's think, okay, I'm looking for some competitive advantages here. So from your perspective as a product leader, what could businesses be thinking about around competitive advantages of using AI, generative AI and LLMs?
2: Well, good question. I think it starts with first identifying the workflows that you, you're looking to you're looking to automate, whether or not it's a workflow that runs on the customer side, you know, inside of your chat bar, whether or not it runs on the back end of your business. But there's a lot of green space for our individual companies to innovate. I mean...
1: Do you have types of workflows that you recommend that somebody look at initially? Like what type of a
2: workflow maybe? Well, I just brought it up HR operations. One of the key workflows would be like, for, inter- for your internal support employees, you could set up a workflow to answer all of your employees' questions just using your internal sort of HR documents. That is something that could be just automated just like that, right? Instead of your HR team building these questions in, like, you know, how much time or how much PTO do I have off? Or, you know, I need to take this date off or that date off. Instead of having that go through a human being, completely automate that. That will give your team some more bandwidth to be able to innovate on other things. But if you're a product leader, you know, I would definitely find write down a list of your top five workflows, whether or not it's HR, whether or not it's customer support, whether or not it's sales or marketing, identify what those workflows are, and then work backwards from there. Figure out like, where's the data that I need to use in that workflow? And then sort of tie all those things together with large language models. You know, one popular system that's open source is LangChain. That is it open source system that ties together large language models along with and has a a whole bunch of other connectors that will connect to your data. That's a great system to use if you're really good at engineering and you have a really good enterprise-grade engineering stack capacity. You know, We also could do this with our workflow tool. But write down what are the workflows that need to be automated. Two, make sure you get the data. You can't do AI on data you don't have. So you have to get the data. And then three, get a tool to tie all those things together, and then you're going to be on your way. Great advice. Appreciate that. So let's
1: jump forward. Let's think future. What types of developments do you anticipate in the realm of LLMs? What do you see coming next? I mean, we've talked a little bit about that on the front end, does search go away? But what's some of the trends that you think we will see in you with LLMs in the next 18 to 24 months, say?
2: Well, as I said earlier, I think that, you know, LLMs have a very small memory window. GPT-4 has a memory window of 8,000 tokens. What does that mean? What's a memory window? Well, memory window is like how much text it can consume. And I believe a token is around one and a half. It's plus or minus like a token could be one or one and a half words, but that is your limitation. So let's say, for example, you had a large book and... The only thing you could ask GPT is like the first five pages or first 10 pages of that book, and that's it. And outside of that, you won't be able to consume it or make decisions on it. You only will be able to consume what you've passed into it. So because of that limitation, I think memory windows will get larger and larger. So you will be able to create much more grand prompts to deliver you larger pieces of content back because right now you're limited to how much content you can deliver back to you. So, for example, I can't just like type in, write me a book, and it will write me a 100-page book. It just won't do that. It does not have enough memory. But I do see that memory window increasing as memory chips get faster, or, uh, computer chips get faster, or graphic chips get faster, and I think that will increase. That's number one. But as far as like the normal day-to-day, I think fine-tuning is going to be like the next big thing, and that will probably be a big thing going into next year. But what will happen is, with customers who have a large corpus of fixed data that will never change. So for example, like what is your street address? What are your hours? What were your financial results for 2022, 2023? So on and so forth. Those results are set in stone. It will be hugely beneficial if you automatically had the stuff preloaded or pre-trained inside of an existing LLM. And that way it won't eat up the memory window that you're limited to today. So for example, if you're wanting to be able to reference old legacy data about your company that your company has stored, instead of having to use retrieval augmented generation where you pre-send that data into the large language model, you'll be able to just ask it and you'll be able to automatically extract it. they will be able to build an answer off of that stuff that you've already pre-trained it on. So ultimately, it will lead to a better experience and it'll be a lot faster, but it'll take us a little bit to get there. I mean, there's only so much compute that's out there. There's only warehouses and these... You know, these server rooms seem to only really be set up so fast. And right now, that's the biggest limitation with, like, how fast this technology can move is based upon how much available compute is out there to be able to deliver on these sorts of solutions.
1: Okay, so you're VP of product. You're thinking about your roadmap. What are some of the exciting things you're thinking about that are a little bit off in the future for your company for capacity and what you guys are trying to do? Like, what are some of the exciting things that you think businesses would be thrilled to hear
2: could be coming to them soon? Oh, we quite a few. One of the things that I'm I'm most interested in is this thing that we tentatively have called agent autopilot, where we found that a vast majority, around 80% of all of the sort of communication that comes into our platform comes in via email. And we have a bot handles automation just fine. But our email channel is still pretty weak. So one of the things that we're going to be deploying very soon is something called Agent Autopilot. And the idea here is for any inbound email that comes in to our system, we will be able to automatically answer on the agent's behalf. We'll have two settings. You'll be able to say, hey, you want this to automatically go to your customer? Okay. If you don't, that's okay. But what it will do is it will also generate a response for that agent to just basically copy and paste, hit send, and there you go. So that is one of the things that I'm most interested in because, you know, for all the, the amount of time and all of the reports and all the leaderboards that deals with sort of maintaining and managing and facilitating a, a help desk, it's very time-consuming. So I want to be able to make those lives of the agents a lot easier and make them work a lot faster, just giving in these sort of new capabilities, the underlying pieces of capacities. So Agent Autopilot, really excited about that. So that should be coming this year. Next year, and I just spoke to it, is to be able to you know help some of our enterprise customers build out and train in custom models based upon their data. So we have customers that sit on terabytes of data that they would love to be able to have access accessible at the end of their fingertips, but they can't. It's like literally faxing it in. You literally have to send an email to this department, and they'll look it up, and maybe maybe a day or two later, they'll be able to find that PDF or find those sets of PDFs and get you the answer that you need. Well, that's what we want to be able to do at scale we do the pre-training and also ETL at scale, be able to consume all of that content and be able to deliver it at the end of your fingertips. So I think that's going to be get hugely exciting. And it's a huge pain for our customers and where they have a lot of legacy data sitting on servers internally and being able to have access to this almost instantly with it's going to be huge, huge help to their bottom line and being able to reduce their overall sort of operational, increase their overall operational efficiency. Absolutely.
1: Well, exciting. Let me switch gears a little bit here as we get close to wrapping up. So you personally, anything you're doing that's kind of interesting or, or fun as
2: it relates to AI? Yeah. So I was doing some prompting stuff back in 2022. I started a small little itty-bitty company. It was called HerebyAI.com, uh, And essentially, it's something I, that I thought was really cool, where one of the things my wife told me was like, hey, it would be really cool if I could find without, when I go to my beautician, I can come to her with, you know, hairstyles that look good on me. Because, you know, what she told me is that when you make a change to your hair, for me, it's a little bit different. I mean, for us, for guys. For you, how do you use this app? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're
1: know, not your target
2: audience, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not my target audience, but I, I have a good focus group. I have a good focus group and I do a lot of VOC there. And what she said was like, hey, it'd be really cool to, without having to commit to cutting off all my hair, what would happen if you could do this with AI? Like, okay, it sounds pretty cool. So I started looking at a couple of tools, a couple of things. And after, you know, a couple beers and, you know, just some late nights during Christmas break, built a site called hairbyai.com. And it's a cool site, but, you know, typically it's really for women who really want to look, who want to get an idea of what a like, potential future hairstyle could look like on them. So you upload a couple photos of yourselves and you hit a couple of buttons, in a few minutes, you'll come out with a whole bunch of hairstyles you'll go print off these photos, take them to your beautician and say, there you go. So it's a cool idea. And actually, you know, now that I think about it, being able to, to configure these hairstyles and stuff like that, it's all prompt engineering. It's all sort of prompt engineering. And if I were to translate that into like large language models, like if you are someone who's interested or remotely interested in getting into this space or really interested in, in how to learn and get involved with using large language models, Hey, ChatGPT is just fine. Practice, practice, practice. It's all about learning how to talk to this thing to be able to deliver to you the result that you want. So that's the only way you're going to get good at this. And, you know, five years from now, we're not going to think about this because everyone will be doing this on a daily basis. But I think today it's really imperative to stay ahead, especially for guys like you and, you and I who are sitting in front of a computer who, who traffic and knowledge and make reasoned decisions. You know, we're at risk at the end of the day. I mean, these sorts of tools can make really good decisions on our behalf if they have the right amount of data. So it's really important for us to really stay on top of these tools as much as possible to be able to deliver as much value to our organizations we work for.
1: Great advice, Mike. Good stuff. Appreciate you sharing that. So one last question before we wrap up here, and this is a more of a personal note. So as we talked about this, a lot of this is focused around CX and the customer experience. Experience is about creating memories you create a memory, that's a good experience. If if it's a good experience, people come back. If it's a bad experience, at least if you're a business, you might know how many people are having bad experiences, you can address it. Chances are, if you have a bad experience, you might offer a negative review. But nonetheless, a memory is typically created out of experiences. And so when we think about experiences and memory, if you're looking to create positive and reinforce positive experiences, you know, it's about creating memories. And so I love to ask, If you were to create an experience for yourself or your family that would create a memory, what would that look like? Maybe it's something you do regularly. Maybe it's something you want to do someday. What is that for you right now? And what does that look like?
2: That's a a good question. One thing that my family and I love to do is just travel. I am uh, fanatical about tracking flight prices. And whenever... Do you use AI to do this? <laughs> <laughs> actually not yet, but actually now I think about it, I probably should build out a tool, which I can't, I think we could build a, a tool that, that actually that does this, but I'll leave this to the, the kayaks of the world, but sure. <laughs> there is AI already being used, right? In kayak, Google, right? 100%, they're miles ahead. But I gotta say with us, we love to travel and you know, I keep my flight tracker on and whenever I see a good deal, I jump right on it, you know. If I see a good deal going to Des Moines, Iowa, there we go. So I love to just get out with my family, build those experiences out because you know my kids are young, and every time we get to go out, you know, with them out on a plane or whether or not it's you know going out to you know sightseeing or whatever at these different places, they build really good, cool memories for myself and my kids. So for me, building out great experiences starts with travel. It's just seeing different things, meeting different people, and eating really good food. That's another good thing. Finding out the good food that's out there. So getting on a plane, checking out those travel deals and enjoying life. I love it. I
1: can relate very similar interests there in, in that and creating memories through travel, but cool. Thanks for sharing that. And again, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Very insightful. Appreciate the really practical application of using LLMs and using generative AI in the business application that so many CX leaders are facing today and love just the some of the practical, very, the in-depth stuff that you brought up too as, as we kind of unpacked LLMs a little bit for the average person. So appreciate the help with that. All right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Cheers.
0: Practical AI, the capacity for good is brought to you by Capacity, an automated help desk, knowledge base, and customer experience platform. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you would like to improve your customer experience and internal operations, head over to Capacity.com and get started for free on behalf of the whole team. Thanks for listening.